Yo, what's the deal, baby? This your boy, Uncle Luke, formerly of the Two Live Crew. You are listening to Pass It Down with Mike Silver and Natalie Silver. Natalie is the most beautiful young lady in this deal right here. Mike doesn't look so good, even though they're dad and daughter. It's the big show, baby. Well, we have big news, Natalie. What's the news? We have somebody on the podcast who is not only an esteemed journalist, but knows way, way too many stories about me. And uh, (laughs) we're going to hope that Ann Kelly is on her best behavior. Hi, Ann. Hi, guys. How are you? I'm so thrilled to be on your podcast. We're thrilled, too. So I have to to give her her proper intro. So back when I first started covering the 49ers uh, in 1989, and for those next few years, we had a big, big group on the beat, and there were a lot of people, I know this is going to shock you, Natalie, who were way better at (laughs) doing that job than I was, and... most of them were kind of old and like not super accommodating, but Anne was actually friendly and better than me. So I kind of tried to, you know, yeah. tried to reach the standard. And uh, um, I'm just, you know, I'm going to brag a little. She is one of the great journalists in the Bay Area ever, probably. She's one of the great sports journalists in America. She has won awards like California Sports Writer of the Year, which is dope. Um, you don't have that. I do not. And uh, she is, she's the, uh, she crushes it almost daily, constantly for the San Francisco Chronicle, uh, still locking it down for the newspaper world, and uh, has done books, did books with Hope Solo, Jenny Finch. She's done middle middle school grade books on soccer <laughs> and uh i could go on and on but hi Anne. hi guys <laughs> you like that Anne? <laughs> that feel good it did i i would i thought he was gonna say that i was one of the most accomplished drinkers on the beach <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. we'll get we'll get to that oh i can't wait so you guys are both on the 49er b at your respective publications in the early 90s late 80s correct yeah um i started in 89 and were you were you 90 yeah i was 90 i wasn't technically on the beat until 90 i did a couple of games but yeah joe uh the 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 year of the three-peat was my first year officially on the beat and you and i were not i was not good i didn't know what i was doing you and I were just the youngsters on the beat, so it was we, super fun. We were, but you were kind of like the good youngster. I don't know. I just I. Uh, so what was it? What was it like? You know, those are super exciting years in football history. What was all that like? It it was kind of like traveling with the Beatles. I mean, <laughs> it, no, I'm not kidding though. I mean, Joe Montana was the biggest star that there was, and they were the the you know the two time reigning Super Bowl champions. They they were dazzling. They had all these stars everywhere you looked. And and um, when they would show up on the road, and back then we stayed in the same hotel as the team. We would take the bus with the police escort to the games. Yeah. Um, we, you know, it was, it was, you would walk into lobbies and they'd be full of people like screaming for autographs. It was kind of crazy. Wow. Yeah, like Matt, I don't know if you saw some of the Last Dance episodes um, during the early 
the the halcyon days of the uh, COVID nineteen crisis, <laughs> back, back in the Tiger King part of the pandemic. <laughs> but uh, you know the, those scenes with the Last Dance with Jordan and yeah. and the Bulls, you know that similar vibe. It was you know it was pre internet and pre social media, obviously, but um, very much of a of a scene. And we we made the rock band analogy a lot, um, and uh, it was. You know, um, I, I even flew on the airplane that first year because my newspaper, the now defunct Sacramento Union, had like a advertising trade deal with the team. Must so be nice. it was. And, and were you on the bus with us? There was a road game in New Orleans where the 49ers wanted in dramatic fashion. They were trying to get out of town quickly. And I guess some of the cars weren't getting out of the way as quickly as they should. And we, you know, we had police escorts and we actually saw Louisiana troopers in our police escort pulling cars over and <laughs> presumably ticketing them for not getting out of the 49ers no. way. For not getting out of enough. Mike Silver's way. Um, yeah. No, but I, the only time I flew on the plane was um, one year in the early nineties. Oh, I can't remember, but Connor, my son was really little and they played a Christmas Eve game in Atlanta. And I was like, and you know, you remember what I was in the low person on the pe in the pecking order of our columnist at the time. <clears throat> I also was the only female and the only mother, but that's <laughs> not, that that, not that I'm bitter about it. So somehow I got assigned that game and I was like, I'll go, but you know, I'm not going to be gone when Santa comes. So I'll go if I can fly back on the team plane. And I actually... Somehow, like you could never do that now, but I did fly back on the team plane on Christmas Eve and landed at like nine o'clock. Awesome. And, you know, a Christmas miracle. <laughs> it was. I told Connor that I saw Santa from the from the window of the airplane. <laughs> oh That's amazing. So isn't there's there's some story that happened in Philadelphia. <laughs> That's all I know. So <laughs> So that little, was almost our last, our last Christmas. That <laughs> was almost our last moment on the beat. Um, the, the funny thing is that that first year that I was on the beat, I was pregnant. The whole almost, yeah, the whole season I was pregnant. And, uh, and so I didn't really have that much fun on the road that first year. And, and then, so the second year I was on the beat, I was ready to party because one, I was... <laughs> I was sad because I had left a, a, you know, my little baby behind. Um, but also, you know, I, I was just like, woo, let's go out. So, yeah, we went out and had a really good time with Nancy Gay, right, Mike? Yeah, in, uh, in South Street Seaport, I think, in Philadelphia. Yeah, and Ira had put us onto some expensive restaurant <laughs> where we were, like, trying to, you know, hide things in our expense reports, probably. <laughs> I, and, and let me just say that, like, you know, I could drink a lot, especially back then, but pound for pound, uh, Miss Killian might have been the uh, the winner of that exchange because, uh, you know, and and doesn't quite have the body weight that some do. So <laughs> there you go. But she was I was a champion. The three of us, we stayed out really late the night before the game. And we realized when we showed up to Veterans Stadium, two things. One, it was this ratchet kind of press box set up where there were, it was a series of little private boxes, right? Like little 
kind of like little rooms with that would only fit a few people here and there after the main one. And they were kind of like, uh, I think, were they even open air? Yeah, and, they were open air. It was cold. Yeah. It was like, oh. I think it was early December. Yeah. So we discovered A, that just Anne and Nancy and I, the p- people who had been out, were pretty much the only ones in the front row <laughs> of this little mini part of the press box. And number two, that we were like insanely hungover. Like I'm shocked. Yeah. Like, like you know, giddy, but nauseous. And uh, and it was it was going to be a long day. <laughs> Yes. And number three, who was sitting behind us? Well, what happened was the 49ers were not playing well. And they oh, were the no. they were the greatest team in the world. Our standards were very high and they were not at their best. They were kind of like And neither were you. Yeah, they were kind of like us. But we were not at our best, but what we did do is we got giant cokes. I I'll, I remember we just kept getting Big cokes yeah. and you know, so we had, ice and caffeine yeah. and sugar. Yeah, and <laughs> we, it. you know, and okay, so again, so there was no Twitter or anything, so all those, you know, funny one-liners that people <laughs> might, you know, throw on Twitter now were just our, you know, running monologue during the games. <laughs> And we thought we were unbelievably funny, but it turned out that when we looked behind us, someone who didn't think it was as funny was 49ers owner, Eddie DeBarno. (laughs) Sitting right behind us and hearing everything we said. Oh. And and he had a you know he he actually liked us but he had a, a temper okay and it was not, you know he wasn't handling it well that they weren't playing well and we were super super biting and obnoxious and he had like his whole crew with him of oh like guys who were you know predisposed to not want Eddie to be upset so it was uh, so did you ever get yelled at. I don't think he actually yelled. I think he might have made like a like one comment to us and just glared at us. I don't. I don't think he actually yelled. I don't think he yelled at us that day. He yelled at me once later on in Cleveland. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, he you know he would he would yell, but I used to, I that whole era, and it doesn't really happen as much anymore. But when when the owner or the or the team president would be sitting right behind you, I got in trouble. Amy Trask did yell at me once um, <laughs> for talking during the national anthem. And that was before the national anthem was even a thing. The players Something Anne and Colin Kaepernick have in common. <laughs> I mean, the, the players didn't even have to be on the field for the national anthem. And I was like leaning over, making some wisecrack to somebody. And Amy got mad at me and I guess Al got mad. And so Amy got mad for Al. Um, and Al used to get really mad at us for, for making cracks about the way the Raiders were playing. Yeah, and, what, and even what? even up to the Trent Bulky era, he used to get furious at us for making, you know, jokes about about how his team would be doing. So it is uh so was the Amy Trask, what city did that happen in? Because I was not I, there. I think it was in New York. I think it was like a Jets game. Interesting. That, that, that kinda I that seems right, but it could be I, I don't know. It could be wrong. <laughs> I know, I know Amy. My dad had me meet her for dinner with a, a couple other people, one of my friends too. And I was so excited to meet her. And she's so nice and awesome, but she's terrifying too. <laughs> she's super nice. And she actually, post Raiders, she actually apologized to me no. about that. And I was like, what are you apologizing for? And then I remembered the story. I mean, it was so many years later, but um, yeah. <laughs> does she email you? She's like the rapid emailer. She does email and she also 
tweets back at me and says hi a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and, and what's funny, so like I've I've tried to kind of, you know, make light of this before that Amy on Twitter, who everyone adores, is not the Amy that I adore or you adore. Like the and hi Amy is a complete, in my opinion, Twitter persona that is not. You know, her thing on Twitter is like, and hi, can't we all just, you know, pleasantly have discourse? And, it's, and like that would be a cool person. I would probably kind of like that person, but that's actually, I do like the real Amy more. And the real Amy is. BFFs with Ice Cube. Yeah, and also scary. Like, oh you know, my God, I was scared shitless of her. I really was. Yeah. I mean, she was super intimidating. I mean, Al was intimidating, but almost as a caricature, Amy was actually intimidating. Yeah. 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 So, Dad, I know that that season that um, Anne was pregnant and couldn't party, you obviously weren't pregnant. And I know that. <laughs> you know, yeah. that out there. Yes. <laughs> um, I, I do remember, like, the. I, I remember a lot about Anne you know, going through that stuff before I did. Going through the, oh my God, I cannot drink because well, I'm well, pregnant. I didn't have to go through that. But I, <laughs> no. I, I remember I was really traumatized when Anne cut her hair because she, she kind of had long hair. Oh, really? And then she just, she had a little newborn who was like pulling at it all the time. And Anne, you were just like, I'm done. Nope, no. not, not having that. <laughs> I had super short hair. Yeah. It well, was, but yeah, did you did you ever go rage with the whole team? I know you did with Rodman, and you're very loud about that. But I've never heard you with 49er people. Yeah. Well, I um I did have one um one thing that happened was when Joe Montana was on injured reserve for two years in a row, basically. Um, that didn't help because he still went to a bunch of road games, but had no curfew and wasn't required to be sober on Saturday night, Got it. you know? And so I just remember we were in new Orleans one time I was walking through Pat O'Brien's, which is like the cheesiest, you know, big new Orleans spectacle. And they has all these little private bars and he, this arm just kind of reached out and grabbed me and pulled me into a private bar. So that was fun. But uh, yeah, no, it was, you know, football players can't really party, you know, before games and we weren't really going out with them on, on Sunday, Monday night. Sunday nights we were writing and Monday nights we were kind of like, I don't know, I was probably trying to like actually spend a minute with mom or something. What was um, Steve Young like? The greatest. <laughs> we, 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 had we had a Steve very Young. weird bond with Steve Young. <laughs> <laughs> so, so first of all, I would just say that like, you know how like, you know, you talk about this guy had three concussions during his playing career or like yeah. this guy might have had a couple of concussions. Yeah. I I think we might have seen Steve Young concussed after games like in double digits. That's so fucked up. <laughs> yeah, no, he was concussed a lot. I mean, he I, – do you remember that game where Jeff Brom finished up the game in Houston? Were you at that game in the Houston Astrodome? I feel, oh, wow. I think he so. He got knocked out. No, you know, I don't, I don't know if you were still on the beat then. That was the night that uh, Ira Miller uh, didn't allow me to drink any wine after dinner and you weren't there. But, yeah, um, wasn't there. <laughs> but, but Steve Young was great. And Steve was so like weird. He was so funny. He was always like, whenever he saw you, he would say, where's Ian? And whenever he saw me, he'd say, where's Mike? Like he thought we were like inseparable. And, and, um, and, then, and then when he was concussed, he he like got a, even more awkward with it. 
<laughs> Do you remember the one, there was one time up in Rockland where he and Brent and maybe Harris were out and they at like a TGIFs. And I think we were out and maybe Richard and I think Steve Young, they sent a beer over to the table, which <laughs> remember that? <laughs> which is kind of funny for a Mormon to do, but, um, <laughs> but it was kind of cool. Like, Hey, okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, uh, so Steve, Steve, a couple of times after games was just so loopy and like, he'd see me and Ann come up to him and he'd kind of be like, Oh, oh when's the wedding or whatever. <laughs> and we'd be like, dude, we dude have, we we're have- both married to other people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but he—he's the best. He stills the best. He's so smart. I mean, if yeah. guy—if he didn't have all those concussions, how smart would he be? I know it's funny, like the way he played. I, I don't know, you know, if people could truly appreciate. I, and I remember somebody said to me after um, Super Bowl forty-seven when the Forty ers had come what five yards from a from a Lombardi Trophy and. <laughs> didn't you know on first and goal and didn't get it somebody said can you imagine if steve young was five yards away from winning a super bowl like that guy would have put his head down and tried to run over 11 people and probably done it right and break his ribs in the process right uh Mm. and yeah nally i don't know if you've ever seen the famous play where his helmet gets knocked off during a play and he just keeps right on running (laughs) forward into the defense and finally gets in preseason when defenders are desperate to make the team. <laughs> so did they go easy on him on the tackle or did they just, you know, did they try to not hit his head or? I think it just worked out that they did oh, hit his head. Nice. But he got hit in the head plenty. And yeah, he does seem to be fine, which is weird when you're assessing the, the head trauma thing. Cause well, I hope he's okay. I hope he's, he, he seems he's great. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's just weird. Some people who don't seem to have a ton of head trauma have, you know, a ton of trouble afterwards and, and vice versa. So I don't know. Um, one person who did not get hit in the head, thankfully um, on Saturday was Sarah Fuller, who is the Vanderbilt goalie and was pressed into service for the football team as a kicker because the football team is so sorry. They only kicked off one time in the entire game. <laughs> exactly. And it's like the most scrutinized kickoff in history. I, I, I mean, and I think what happened, and you, maybe you followed it more closely. I think what happened is she did what the coaches told her to do, which was like a directional squib kick. Squib kick, yeah. But were people accusing her of not doing that on purpose? Oh think, yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I didn't even. The, the, there's certain times where I try to stay off social media. One is, you know, in the. 72 hours after the presidential election of 2020. And another time is when a, when a woman is, is uh, a female is making a sports history in a, in a college football game. Um, because yeah, uh, I think it got pretty ugly. And, and uh, you know, she, the, there was a story, I think it was in the athletic. Um, and there were some great quotes from the coach who said, you know, we tried a bunch of their players who, who just couldn't do it. And, and she came out and she, was really good. And then she kept getting better and better and better. And of course they had her practicing field goals and extra points and everything else. So yeah, she was told to, to uh, squib it. And that was, I mean, it would have been so much more interesting if she had a lot more opportunity, but yeah. my brother just showed us that video. She posted, I don't know, you, you've probably seen it. She posted, it. I'm just going to leave this here. And it's a video of her doing a goal kick that goes all the way to 
the other box and is assisted. Yeah, like, like literally, literally, goal kick lands in the in the box and someone flicks it in. Yeah, that's it. Awesome. <laughs> Hope, Hope uh, Solo once had a had a goal from a goal kick. She scored the goal. Yeah, the goal I think so. I think it did. Yeah, man, I could be making that up. You wrote her book, right? I did. I did. I wrote her autobiography. That's uh, solo the, and memoir of hope yeah i gave you a hard time about the title i think but uh <laughs> well it was kind of obvious you know Killian, a memoir of Anne. <laughs> <laughs> and what would you what would you title my dad's memoir going <laughs> 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 <Spooling> for silver <laughs> Drop the mic. <laughs> I'll never forget one time when we were we were traveling together. I think we were at the Houston airport. And you, <laughs> do you remember this? I and do remember we were this. In Houston, Texas, and and it was like in the early nineties. And you were checking in, and the the woman said, "Silver, I've never heard a name like that before." And you said, "I guess you don't know any Jews." No, no. I- I said, so I tried to like, she was a young woman. I, we were really tired. We, it was early in the morning. I tried to say something like, you know, if you ever watch like a TV show or a movie <laughs> and Anne, who had no patience for it, goes, ever met a Jew before? <laughs> oh, oh, it was me who said that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was the anthem ignoring. Uh, <laughs> That's a really good memoir title, Mike. Ever met a Jew before? <laughs> I like it. Mike, I'm Steve Kerr's best friend. That's the... You could do worse, though. I mean... There's... You could do so much worse. <laughs> um, it, you know, if Hope Solo did have to kick at the University of Washington or in any competitive football game and... It was like a long kick and actually got returned and she had to make a play. I, I feel like she might have a chance of, you know, laying, laying some serious wood on the, the ball carrier. Oh, yeah. You wouldn't want to mess with Hope. Mm-mm. She's right. tough. <laughs> she I, is and, tough. And plus, like, you know, Jeremy Stevens probably could have taught her some football, you know, skills. So I feel like she probably would have been – a great emergency kicker in football. Yeah, I, I mean, that was my first thought was, well, it would have been super fun to see Hope do this. But, you know, I mean, I I, I think it was cool because it was organic. And, and there's, you know, there's some silver linings to the weird COVID thing and that there's some kind of organic things that have happened. And that's one of them. Another one is, you know, that a whole bunch of people turn, tuned into the WNBA, you know, because yeah. there weren't other things to watch. And so all of a sudden people were like, oh, this is kind of cool. I mean, they're, you know, the fact that Vanderbilt had to do it out of necessity, it's kind of sad that they don't have a men's soccer team, but, you know, they, they needed to go to someone who could kick a ball. And so they, you know, they, they went to the women's soccer team. They don't have a men's. So, yeah, I, I thought it was um, – one of those kind of good COVID stories. There, there aren't a lot, but there are a few. You know whose fault it is that they don't have a men's soccer team. Title nine. <laughs> they did it. Not the way our competition. <laughs> it couldn't in any way be because of their hapless football. Team. <laughs> Title nine and Antifa together. <laughs> they did it. <laughs> Snowflakes. 
Libtards. Libtards. <laughs> well, obviously, women's soccer has played such a transformative role in women's sports and just kind of women's equality in general. And you've kind of been there for, I mean, the 1999 World Cup. Yeah. Um, and then even the 2019 World Cup, that was also a huge moment in a different way. Um, because, you know, like we saw all these women kind of come together and stand for things larger than the sport in the Trump administration, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what do you think is a more impactful team and moment for like the larger, I don't know. Um, well, I kind of hate to compare it just because, you know, I mean, I mean, everything in sports is an evolution and, and there is no 2019 without the 1999ers. But I mean, I, I, I will say that in 1999, when I was covering that World Cup, um, that, I mean, it was, it was mind blowing. You know, I remember being, and a lot of it, the reason my mind was so blown was because I had covered the NFL for so long and I was standing at the very first game, standing in, you know, giant stadium at the Meadowlands where you look, you know, where the meals are, uh, Mike, and you look yeah. out and you can see the Jersey Turnpike and you can see New York City in the distance. And I looked out, I was there for the first game the U.S. was playing, I think it was Denmark, and the parking lot was packed. The freeway was packed. It looked like it was packed all the way back to New York City. Like it was, I mean, it was like just this mass of human beings coming to watch a woman's team sport, a woman's soccer team play. And it was like, I was like, oh my God, they are going to pull this thing off. And it, that, that was the thing that they played in the biggest stadiums available to them in the world, uh, which are NFL stadiums. And they filled them to capacity and people couldn't get enough of it. And they just, I mean, it was, it was one thing where I really felt like, yeah, I'm covering a sporting event, but I really feel like I'm covering something that history is going to look back on and say, wow, that was a kind of a, a big shift in thinking and a shift in, in a, you know, a, a sea change, so to speak. And then, of course, the way it ended up and with our mutual friend, Brandy, Yep. You know, that image of her, of this powerful, ripped woman just celebrating. And it was just like, it was such a profound moment from start to finish that um, I, I would say, I think that is, um, you know, in in the grand scheme, maybe more important. But, but then what the 2019 team did and, you know, what they've stood for, what they've, you know, equal pay. And there was a development today with... Um, them settling part of their suit with the with U.S. soccer, and now they get to go on and pursue another part of it. But um, you know, and and Megan taking on, you know, the <laughs> what we used to call the president of the United States, the leader of the free world. I don't think that's an apt description anymore. But anyway, taking on the president of the United States on social media and just standing her ground, and then you know, and then you know, walking her talk on the field. It it was pretty awesome. It was. It was pretty compelling stuff, and and I think, you know, those those women have become icons in their in their own right, and and I don't know, would they supplant the other ones? I mean, I do think, and the ninety niners hate to hear this. I think the the skill level, like it is in all sports, just keeps getting better and better. And I think you take that twenty nineteen team. I think they they probably beat the twenty. I mean, the ninety niners. Um, the ninety niners wouldn't want to hear that, but. 
yeah, it it was it was pretty um, pretty dramatic and profound stuff. We were in uh, Natalie wasn't there, but Leslie and uh, Greg and Robbie and I were at this in Cannon Beach, Oregon. Um, for this little it's a hardware store that's also like a little tiny tiny sports bar. Not, not, sports bars overstating it, like a TV and three tables. But we're watching the, uh, um, the, I guess it was the France game when Rapino came out and showed out after it was the quarters. And uh, um, when she scored the first goal, I may or may not have gotten an all caps text immediately from one of my childhood friends that you may or may not know that said, she's not going to the fucking White House. <laughs> that is damn right. Would that person have maybe not gone to the White House either? Uh, yes. Possible. <laughs> Very possible. Um, you know, I, it's like, it's funny you talk about the giant stadium thing because one of those docs has the footage where they're on the bus in that traffic jam going to the game and they start to realize oh, yeah, like, it's Foudy's footage. Right? Yeah. Like, Holy shit. This is for us. Like they, like it, you see in real time, cause they had taken the big risk to book the big stadiums and not, you know, there were a lot of people who said, don't book those stadiums, play it. in you yeah. know, no play it at like San Jose state size sta- stadium. Right. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so they took the risk and a lot of people thought there's no way, or maybe they'll, you know, they'll do okay. And then you, you see, you actually, you literally see their faces as they're like, Oh my God, this, th- you know, yeah, this is not, this is not some New York traffic jab. This is for our game. Well, and, and they did it. That was the coolest thing about it is that those, those women did it themselves. You know, they were out there like signing autographs or talking, you know, at little soccer clinics like Natalie, like you and my daughter went to, you know, yeah. and, and I mean, they were out there doing the grassroots work. And so there was this, and I fought a little bit in, in um, Atlanta at the, at the 96 Olympics um, mm-hmm. that, you know, that was when you, I think the world first realized like, oh, wow. And when that was the first year soccer was in the Olympics and that they won the gold and, and there was this groundswell of little girls who just, they knew all their names. They had their jerseys. They, they knew everything about them. And, and it was, I mean, I always love it when, you know, the, uh, the back then in the nineties, there were a lot of moments like this where the old uh, stuffy sports writers and and the sports editors just could not believe like that anyone knew who these people were and they just couldn't believe anyone cared about women's sports they couldn't believe i found it not only with women's soccer but with men's soccer too Met the old stuffy sports editors hated soccer didn't understand it and they would like just you know think it was ridiculous that anyone would want to cover like the night i covered the 94 world cup because no one else in my paper wanted to <laughs> amazing well and 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 think about it like now i i, I mean i don't want to understate the impact because um you know i now have a son who's 21 and wanted a Rose Lavelle jersey for well he may or may not it may or may not be in love with her yeah well (laughs) who's not in love with her she's the best but I mean it's kind of a joke the family joke is that you know at the very beginning of the World Cup uh Greg was like hey they need to play Lavelle more and we're like who like you know like we know the team pretty well we didn't really know her and like by the end we're like oh yeah she's kind of unbelievable 
So, uh, yeah. and then, you know, maybe she'll be my daughter-in-law one day. <laughs> By the way, what did the old stuffy sports writers think of you two? Were you rivals or were you comrades? Uh, <laughs> they didn't well, know how to do it. I think in sports writing, it's, it's funny because I think a lot of um, the rest of the newsroom doesn't understand that sports writers, yeah, we're in competition with each other, but we spend so much time together that we know each other better than we know like anyone at our at, at the place of employment, you know? I mean, like I knew people on the 49ers beat better than I knew anyone back in the Mercury News new, newsroom. Um, so, but yeah, I think, um, I don't know, did, we tried to bridge the gap a little bit, Mike, right? We, I mean, like, we tried to be friends with Ira and, and, uh, yeah, I, I, that's a whole other podcast. But I, I, you know, you got to get Ira on your podcast. I know. That. Actually, actually, I do. That would be amazing. But, but um, you know, I know that when I started, I was trying um, to fit in, and I, you know, I was twenty three, and I had grown up a Forty Nine er fan in LA, so I was just like, it was a dream. I was just having, you know, I, I just love coming to work every day, but the the culture was one of complaint and, you know, things had gotten, you know, kind of contentious with the team with Walsh had just left, but the, you know, the PR and the sports writers, and there was just a lot of complaining. And so I, I wanted to fit in. So I just kind of found myself complaining the first few months all the time. And then I, I remember just having an epiphany. Oh, yeah, one that's day. always how I bond with people. Yeah. But then eventually I was like, okay, I'm not going to complain. Like this, this is not, but it's an in. It's always ditches. a valid in. Yeah, but yeah, but there there was a lot of complaining going on. Like it wasn't, you know, it, it, it could have been worse. But then, you know, and the second year, which is when you came, um, I think I was more, you know, I, I just I, I couldn't compete at all with the, um, you know, like Ira Miller was tight with the GM, right. John right. McVay, Sean McVay's grandpa, uh, and, uh, you know, and coaches and new agents. And my only chance was to try to like bond with the players. <laughs> like beer bong with well, all the players. Well, it was more just like, you know, just joke, you know, and you would do this with me too. We would just joke around with guys in the locker room a lot. And a lot of the times those were the third stringers or the, you know, the people who were not prominent. And we would just hope that they got prominent. Like when Steve Bono became the starter, we were like, that's the guy we talked to every single day. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and then some of the, some of the starters were, would liked us like, uh, like Eric Wright. He always liked us. <laughs> Eric Wright uh, called Anne. Lois Lane, Low. or more accurately, Low Lane. <laughs> Lois, he still calls me that. Oh. When I, I, so, when I so, call him, that he if I call him, he'll pick up the phone and go, Lois. <laughs> so I'm I'm going to tell a quick Eric Wright story. There are so many, but um, Eric Wright's from East St. Louis, Missouri. Very, okay. very, very tough neighborhood. Fought his way out of, and early on in the beat, he really liked me. He was and, I, and really loved him but he would you know grind on me every day silver where you from silver you ain't got no dog in you you ain't got no dog and it was like a running joke for years and years and years until that blessed day in 1994 when i showed up for a mini camp and said yeah i'm from brentwood we got double homicide up in this we got bloody gases that's right i'm from the wood 
one and it was what the whole locker room was cracking what up. The fuck? They all knew the joke and like right after the OJ thing we had a mini camp and I got to go in and tell oh, and tell I Eric Wright I was from the mean ass streets of the most famous murder of our era. Oh my god. Wait, I get it now. Oh my god. So and you know, we're talking about women in sports. We just talked about the athletes. How was it for you in sports journalism? And obviously, not only kind of like a male-dominated industry, but also you're going into locker rooms. Hold on. Let me mansplain this to her. It, it, was, it was great. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was it was interesting. I mean, I, I um, it, it was hard. I mean, it was, I was one of the few and, um, I had a famous, like, and this was early on, my first year on the beat, a famous incident with Charles Haley, who, you know, I know now know, you know, has a lot of issues and a lot of um, behavioral issues that weren't just directed at me. He was directed them at a lot of people, but he did this one particular day um, direct them at me and super harass me. Um, when he didn't have any clothes on and I was in the locker room and it was a very awkward situation and there was no PR person in there. And I finally left and Keena Turner was the guy who came out and said, don't be upset. He does that to everyone. I'm like, he really does that to everyone. Like, <laughs> you know, like, um, but, and the weird thing was uh, the, it was this, you know, there's this very famous incident of harassment with a very good friend of mine, Lisa Olson. She's wasn't a friend of mine then, but she's a friend of mine now in Boston with the Patriots, which were, which at the time were one of the most dysfunctional NFL franchises. Yep. Funny to think about. Um, and so she had this super well publicized moment of harassment. It actually occurred on the same day that Charles Haley did this to me. Was it the same day? It was the same freaking day. And it just, the way it played out was a difference between West Coast and East Coast. It was a difference between the 49ers who, you know, were the standard bearer of being a successful NFL franchise at the time. And the Patriots were just a mess. And their owner came out and like said Lisa was like, you know, to blame that she was uh, acting in a, I mean, it was just awful. He, and he, called, he called her a, he made an offhand comment that she was a classic bitch, which yeah. didn't help this idiot um, named Victor Kayam. Right. And, yeah. and meanwhile, um, the 49ers, uh, well, George made Haley apologize to me um, in like in front of the locker room, which was, which was helpful, but also I didn't want to talk about it. Um, and I, I can't say whether or not that was the best strategy because I did have several people want to interview me about it because it was became kind of a, like, like there were no cameras in there, but it became kind of a known thing. And, you know, it's a it's a storyline, sadly, that people still get intrigued about. Ooh, a woman in a man's locker room. It's like, oh, my God, you know, it's so tired. But um, yeah, so, I mean, there was that. But the 49ers... Um, you know, they they were very professional. That was like kind of one of my only incidents with them. It was still there was some incidents when you would go into a different team's locker room after a game. Certainly in baseball, there were other incidents. Um, so it's you know it it was definitely um, 
you know, I still felt in the minority. I, w- I mean, I definitely was in the minority. And, and it was just, you know, I, I got to say, I, I don't give ESPN a lot of credit for a lot of things. But I think ESPN's dominance over the decade of the 90s really changed not only the public's perception of women um, involved in sports, but also the athletes, because they were all used to women um, either announcing their sports or, you know, I mean, they women were part of the scene um, more and more. So as athletes have grown, like most athletes now, they're just like, well, I'm used, almost all of them have dealt with women since they, you know, started to be good in high school. So they're used to it. But back then it was still, you know, something of a novelty. Yeah. And, you know, so the Lisa Olson thing, unfortunately, because it became so public, mm-hmm. um, it kind of ruined Lisa's life for say, a while. Yeah. She literally moved to Australia um, for a while, for a decent amount of time. Right. And like, yeah, she moved for um, first, she tried to, they put her on the Celtics beat and Boston fans, lovely as they are dumped, um, dumped like threw beer on her and stuff um, while she was on press row. Like it just became untenable to stay in Boston. And so she was working for Murdoch and they offered her a job at an Australian paper (laughs) in Sydney. And, um, uh, and she went there and I think she was there. She might've been there close to a decade. Uh, I don't think that long. Cause I remember covering the Nagano Olympics with her in 98 and she was at the daily news in New York. So yeah. she came back and went to the daily news, but, and for a long time she didn't want to talk about it cause that was kind of sure. her famous thing. And then, you know, I don't know, there was another incident sometime in the last five or so years and people wanted to talk to her. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's her story. So I don't, you know, I think she's, she doesn't want to be dropped into every single, you know, time something like this comes up. Um, so I, which I don't, I don't blame her because it is, you know, it's, it's, it's just, it was part of the times, you know, we had, cool. women had to deal with that and it, and there was not a lot of outrage or protection. We didn't really feel like we could um, make a huge fuss because right. we were in the minority. But now I think, like what you see women reporters going, women sports reporters, women involved in sports, what you see them going through on Twitter is a manifestation of what we all were going through um, kind of on an individual level back then. And it's, it can, it can be pretty nasty. Well, I mean, I, I know I've, I was kind of shook. I remember literally I have vivid memories of walking with you because a lot of these old stadiums, Natalie, we would walk through the stands to get down on the field to the locker room at the end of the game. And I remember in the wake of the Lisa Olson thing, walking with Ann and people yelling stuff, you know, like, Hey, you're going to go in the locker room. Ah, you're going to look at their dicks. And I was like <laughs> turning back, like, dude, like, what are you like? Uh, this is, this is really scary. And I don't think I really appreciated it at the time. I wasn't there the day of the Haley thing. Um, and I just don't think I ever really got, you know, how gnarly it was. Cause yeah. I mean, you know, well, but like Ann said, it's not like sexism has died there, you know, people just kind of adapt to I I just know that like I've I've had to explain not as much lately but over the years to so many people like my women friends who cover sports 
are not loving that moment when they get to go in the locker room and be surrounded by a bunch of showering naked dudes. Like it, you know, I, I don't like it either, but I'm also not feeling it's not as charged for me because of the overtones, but you know, you guys, you know, you definitely don't want it to be a thing and you definitely aren't like, Woohoo! This is awesome. I get to go see a 300 pound sweaty offensive lineman's butt while he bends <laughs> over. To- well, and that's, you know, everyone, I mean, I think you and I used to joke about this, like, Oh, you get to go in the locker room. You get to go in the locker room. It's like, <laughs> Oh yeah, I get to, I get to have, you know, come out with athletic tape on my, on my, all over my shoes. And like, it's so steamy that you can't even write. And back then we had to write in our notebooks and our pages would be all wet. And these guys, you know, someone would be rude or farting or, and there's blood and pus. And I mean, it's just pretty gross. <laughs> and, then, and, and back then, like, I mean, think about that 49ers locker room at Candlestick Park where like, oh. Oh my God. It was like, it was like, uh, before the giants moved, it was like a shoebox, and, <laughs> and there was two levels and Jerry Rice would always be taking up the freaking mirror. Right? <laughs> An entire corner where the mirror was Jerry. And then the, the offensive linemen were along the top row and they never ever. And I loved those guys. I mean, they were great guys, great interviews. You had to talk to them. Not one of them would put their clothes on. They would sit on those <laughs> on those little tiny stools with, with like a tiny like washcloth sized towel over their laps and, and conduct like twenty minute interviews. It was like, oh, Jesse Sapolo, could you just please put on put on your shorts? <laughs> you, you always like uh, you always think like what would the great line be you know after the fact and there's this i don't even know what woman sports writer it is maybe you do there's a there's lore that one woman was being harassed similarly by a guy gyrating behind her going oh yeah baby you see this you know what this is and she turns and she goes it looks like a penis only smaller (laughs) (laughs) i think it was helene elliott Wow. Yeah, from, a, from the LA Times. She wasn't at the LA Times when she said it, but I think that's who it was. That's unbelievable. It's so good. Well, it's, Dad, I know you miss locker room access now. Yeah, well, you know, I, I've i always said, look, as long as it's equal, we'll deal with it, right? If, you know, women's, like, a lot of women's sports don't let anyone in, and they just bring people out, and we all have the same access. So, um, that would be the, the the most important thing, but we do benefit by being in places where we have free reign to actually try yeah. to talk to people and talk to them alone. You know, like where you know, and when you've covered you know mixed zones in international soccer and in Olympics, whatever they do, that's that's a lot tougher, right? Oh yeah, it's really tough. I mean, sometimes you can get you know, if someone knows you and they'll just like walk away. Like I, when I was working on Hope's book, she used to walk away like, cause she's, she would be prickly with the rest of the press. And sometimes she would just give me a couple things, but yeah, I mean, I mean being, a, especially on a, with like an NFL team where there's so many moving parts. Right. And, and if you leave it to the, to the PR people, to who they bring to the podium, I mean, you're going to have to hear the quarterback, right? Everyone does. But, but you know, they're only going to bring a couple of people. And so you're not going to 
get the guy who muffed the punt or, you know, I mean, you have to, you have to go in and find those or everyone has their one, you know, someone has their guy like that they like to talk to who might give them, you know, some insight. I, I think it's this zoom stuff has been super weird because if there's a problem um, and it's not something obvious like the starting pitcher or, or the quarterback, they're, they're not going to make them available. You know, I mean, they're just, yeah. they're just not. So you're kind of stuck. And um, there's no, and there's no follow-up question. Yeah. Which is also hard, right? Like sometimes someone yeah. will, you know, like think of all the times you watched a Trump interview or something and you wanted to be able to have the follow-up come, which would be like, yeah. but everything you just said is completely contradicted by this. So answer it, you know. But then it also equalizes access, right? Which is the hard thing. Like you're not getting rewarded for hustling and making correct connection. Yeah. Um, and, and I think if you had to cover a new team or you break into this business now under these circumstances, it's almost unfathomable to me how hard it would be. I mean, I'm just trying to get by on people whose phone numbers I have and, and pre-existing relationships. And, um, you know, it, it feels hard to me, but I just think if you're, you know, it, it just, it's tough, but you know, we, we are all the real victims of this. <laughs> well, that's, that's why I don't really care about any of the games. I mean, because one, I don't even know if any of them should be being played. And two, I mean, they just seem like everything seems like a TV show now, you know, I mean, in terms of reporting on like, you know, how's Jimmy Garoppolo doing or any of that stuff. So I think it's really hard for beat writers, but um, for, as a columnist, you know, you know, the joke about columnists, we don't care if we talk to anyone. (laughs) But but it's actually been to me in a weird way, some of the most satisfying work that I've done just because I find this period of time so fascinating in sports, both between the pandemic and how it's like, exposing our weird priorities in this country and then and then the social justice stuff on top of it um it's just it's it's really been a a really interesting eight or nine months of of my career it's i mean nothing like it for sure yeah i mean like well what do you think about college sports because i know there was a situation with ucla right you can talk more about it where they were contest can uh conducting thousands of tests and we can can you, can you, can you tell she's any. my daughter? She's going right after your alma mater right here. Well, I can tell you that the nurses who work anywhere around Cal could probably say the same thing. I mean, that's the oh, thing. It's yeah. just, it's just this immense hypocrisy where, where RNs, you know, the biggest union uh, did a survey of RNs did a survey and of their, however many 15,000 respondents, obviously not everyone responded to their survey, but like a third of them had been getting tested at work. And yet, you know, the NFL is up, they're testing like 40,000, they're doing 40,000 tests a week so that they can play something like that. I mean, it's, it's insane to me. It's, it's absolutely insane. And, and I think college sports is just the worst. I mean, because they're, at least in the NFL, there's this financial incentive. There's, there's no, the, the, the people at risk, the players are being asked to do this absurd thing, which is play through a pandemic. They, they don't get paid. They, and it, you know, I mean, we're all packed. They don't have a union. They don't have a union. Either, so. have a union. Yeah. Um, and you know, in Alabama, it's one thing, right? I mean, Alabama is, you know, that's a billion dollar or whatever, but in the Pac-12, 
Like nobody cares. Like stop <laughs> it. Stop making us try to do this. It's just so absurd to me. That, I, uh, you I know, would... and and especially after the way that Cal game ended, right? I mean, don't you think it's <laughs> <There> it is. <laughs> I, I feel like we should have ended the football season before the extra point. <laughs> Actually, I think Cal should have lined up to go for two, so you had the illusion that we could have won. I think we should have and then contacted just, Sarah Fuller. Yeah, <laughs> there was a hundred percent chance that Sarah Fuller had a better chance. But it's not just the kicker. It's not just the kicker. I, I don't know. I'm not blaming any kid any college kid yeah. but the coat the uh the preparation for cal special team was not well, and not. and just you know larry scott the commissioner like oh we're gonna have all this rapid testing it's gonna be fantastic well it hasn't been fantastic and now like stanford has gone off to you know play their game in washington like it I don't, to me it just doesn't make any sense and so through this whole pandemic no matter what the sport but especially college sports it it makes me feel bad about my job and about sports priority in this world. It makes me cringe. It makes me wonder what our priorities are. And I also feel like it's um, in many ways fueling this because we're putting out this veneer of normalcy and things aren't normal. Like, let's just stop pretending that, you know, the Denver, Denver taking the field with zero quarterbacks is yeah. a as a normal thing. And let's just like move on to next year. Like let's just get rid of this thing. And the vaccine we know now, thankfully is coming and let's just do it when it's, when you can do it for real. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I totally agree with you on college sports. That triggers me a lot, you know, and as the parent of two college students, I'm like, come on, you know, I, I just, um, I get, the NFL, if you want to make that decision, you've got a union, you've got money on the line, you've got contracts and the ability to opt out. But I agree with you. The Something about the Bronco thing triggered me because, um, you know, there's a part of me that still says the customer is always right. And if the product is ridiculous um, and that poor kid, you know, had no prep and is not equipped to play quarterback in an NFL game. And now you're putting that out there. Right, it's not safe. Yeah, it's not safe, and it's not. Uh, it, you know, it's it cheapens the standard, and the you know, at some point, you got to protect your your brand. And you well, know, it, I, and even what the 49ers are going through, you know, and I mean, I don't need to tell you, you know, NFL fans are obsessed with their team, but they also like to like denigrate players for making money. Um, so, Correct. you know, nobody's going to feel sorry for these players, but I feel sorry for them. I mean, they're, they're having to relocate for pop probably, I mean, let's just be honest. They're probably going to relocate for the rest of the season, which is five weeks. And could be longer if they get in the playoffs. And could be longer. And, you know, some of them have, have, they have little kids. They, there's a couple of people who have pregnant wives who are due in December. Yeah, yeah, I talked to I talked to Robert Sala Saturday night, and he said, "Yeah, my wife is pregnant with our seventh. And I was like, "Dude, dude, what are you, Philip Rivers?" <laughs> He's on his way. Um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, there's a human element to it, and it's just you know, it's and I don't blame San, I I applaud Santa Clara County for treating an NFL team like a regular business. Like, you know, we have these, these strict measures in place. Um, and so that now they're going to go to a place with worse rates of the coronavirus. 
because it's Arizona and because it, this is a political issue and we, we have no normalization of standards. Um, and they're going to go there, you know, and reload. I mean, it's just the whole thing is bananas to me and it just it makes me uncomfortable. I totally get it. We have like 40 more questions for you, but we also have a propensity for punishing our listeners with long podcasts and punishing our very gracious guests by taking up too much of their time. So I'm going to, I'm going to ask you one more thing and, um, and then thank you. But, um, and I'll say this is a spoiler alert for those of you who have not watched the undoing, but I noticed that Anne tweeted about it. We, we caught up and saw it Sunday night and watched it. Um, and your tweet was, um, what about the fake medical conference road trip, which is a great point. So I'm just wondering if you want to expand upon your thoughts about the undoing and the finale. Well, that's been bugging me the whole time, right? Was, <laughs> right. was this an act of passion? He had already said before they went to that, that uh, auction or whatever it was, that night that he had a had to leave early in the morning because he had this road trip to a medical conference in Cleveland. And we find yeah, out he said that before. Yes. Right? And it's completely fake because he'd been fired like three months before and he didn't have any medical conference to go to. So it that makes me think it was all premeditated, but they never went back to that. That's a great point. Cause also maybe he was just gonna go away for the weekend with her who was just gonna slide out with her newborn. But she said that they were gonna have tea and all hang oh, out yeah. as a family. You're right. They were okay. Great, great point. Cause let's look at the timeline as we know it now. And I thought the prosecutor did a good job of pointing this out. So the dude bangs a woman, leaves, allegedly goes back, sees her dead, goes home. Um, pretends his patient dies, has sex with his wife, uh, presumably without having showered. So he's even grosser than you know he already seemed. Then, that's not the Notting Hill, Hugh Grant. No, that's it's more like the uh, you know the busted for prostitution, Hugh Grant. Uh, so so then he uh, then he uh, kisses the son goodbye, leaves. Goes uh, to the dry cleaner. Goes to the dry cleaners with the bloody tux. And I'm sure the dry cleaners are like, oh, okay, cool. Um, cruises over to the beach house and leaves the murder weapon in a paper bag. By the way, it's a beach house. There's an ocean right there. <laughs> that is true. There is an ocean right there. Let's put I, it like, in a fireplace where someone's bound to find it. I'm struggling with the with the whole thing. Questions needing answers. But that's a great point, Ed, because he wasn't going to go away with her. So what was he doing with the fake? Yeah. Okay. Good. Okay. Yeah. That... I don't know. It's a loose. Set. It, it super annoys me. I mean, I know that you guys probably know this as as writers. <laughs> I mean, it super annoys <laughs> me when something's not tied up. Like that yeah. never made any sense to me. So right. Yeah. Whereas, like through the, the lens of journalism. Now. Whereas, like to compare it to the other recent anthology where Nicole Kidman played the wife of a psychotic weirdo, uh, Big Little Lies. I thought it was a season one was a great finale. Yeah. Even though it was kind of like, whoa, that's convenient, and I'm surprised you would actually try to give us that. It, it did. Worked. It tied it up, and it was a twist. Yeah. No, it did. It worked. Yeah. I don't know. It, I mean, I enjoyed the undoing. I, I liked how it made Man, Midtown Manhattan and the Upper East Side look super scary all the time. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I, cool. And I like her. I like him. I mean, I thought it was good, but at the end, I was kind of like, eh, 
Come on. Wait, also, why was she walking in Harlem? Dad, you were obsessing about this. Yeah, so yes. I was obsessing on the, geog the geography. She's like, oh, I was out walking. I'm like, bruh, you went to a fundraiser like in Midtown, right? And yeah. she lives on the Upper East. And she just went out walking in Harlem? Yeah, and got so she lives on like fifth like fifth in the 80s or the early 90s i mean she was like right she looked out right at the reservoir right so it, so how many blocks is that if you're walking i guess it's i guess you could do it at night it was cold yeah, but just by coincidence i thought right. for sure she was going to be the one who did it yeah oh yeah and i you know you know leslie's a psychologist so we had all these like you know <laughs> the fuke state yeah, and we the, had a full diagnosis you know that temporary in. amnesia we like, should post it dad her screenshot <laughs> <laughs> she, had, she had it all worked out i never trusted the blonde uh lawyer friend i thought i thought she might have been in on it i thought yeah. she was having an affair with him or something Me too yeah yeah I, and then some people were sure donald sutherland did it yeah oh well he definitely you know, he definitely wished he had. I that mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, that's Donald Sutherland. I mean, I don't know what you've seen him in. You've certainly seen him in Animal House as the professor. No way. <laughs> that's totally no way. Donald Sutherland's a legend. He's and a legend. Um, we, want, we want to bring you back every week for an hour. Just free up your schedule. <laughs> <laughs> this was super fun, you guys. I miss you, and I want to see you when humans congregate once again. That'll um, be great. Thank you so much. Okay, you guys. Thanks for having me.